Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. It's an absolute pleasure today to have my oldest friend in the Sandler network, Paul Lanigan. He was the guy that I reached out to after I'd spent five months ignoring the Sandler material that someone had given me, only to let me know that I was too late to buy the Master franchise, which is probably a good thing for the UK business. Paul, can you give us a quick introduction to who you are and your journey to get to this point? Regular Joe comes from a council house, started out life as a software engineer, kind of did that techie journey and like a lot of people accidentally ended up in sales, perhaps because I wasn't good enough programming or the technology stuff. Because <laughs> you mean we you all have know to be worse something else to fall into sales. 100%. 100%. When you say the thing about sales... You must have been really left. shit. <laughs> yeah, well, you can, you can hide in sales. Well, the thing was, how it happened was very simple, that one of the sales guys came around to the office one day and it was we were working on this product and it was way pre-release. Even the pre-sales guys didn't know much about it. I was one of the developers. And he basically said, anybody here in the office like to come with me see customer? And everybody else in the office put their head down. You don't want to see a customer. No way. The programmers. And I kind of looked up, what, what, what was that? And he kind of pointed at me. He goes, yeah, you come. Truth was, I enjoyed it because I got out of the office for a day, got to talk. We all know that's what sales is all about. I guess maybe it was the ego stroke because nobody else on that customer call knew anything about it. So I was been asked all these questions and I, I felt important. So that was it. I thought this is where I want to be. So that started a kind of a, a meandering journey that ended up in sales. And then I wasn't good enough at sales. So what did I do? I became a trainer. <laughs> that sounds to me like that's a lifetime of head trash. And I know when we were prepping for the call, we were going to talk about the things that hold us back. Let's both bear our souls on this one. And that is bear our souls, not bear our souls. Um, <laughs> I can <laughs> do that Paul too. Inci- Trust me. Uh, incidentally, Paul is the author of a, a very fine book, which I invariably get the title wrong The Hard Tales and Soft Asses. No, other way around. Soft tales and hard asses. There you go. And he's a master storyteller. And if you haven't yet seen his videos, they are without question the best sales videos on the internet. Fabulous production values, amazing stories. But enough blowing smoke up your ass. Let's talk about our areas of deficiency and vulnerability. Mm. What are the things that you found that held you back the most? It's funny because... It, it's really hard to put a finger on that because we can, we can say, here's what I think holds us back. But very often, it's several layers deeper than that. And so you can say, I'm not ready or I'm not knowledgeable enough or that doesn't turn me on. But really, when you strip it back, there's something else going on. And I've experienced this over my life. I've experienced times where I'm highly motivated to do things. And then the very same things maybe years later, I have zero motivation. And so therefore, it can't be the activity because the activity really hasn't changed. So there's something else. Was it motivation I lost? Was it something else happened that destroyed the motivation I had? Or was it just I got bored? And it's really, really hard to find out and and uncover the reality because we're such complex humans. Because we can often get attachments to 
things. Could be uh, a favorite team, for example, or a person. But we've all been in situations where we've lost that attachment. And sometimes it's a single event. It's big event. Then sometimes it's like a waterfall on a rock. It's that over time, it just wears it down. And you, you don't see the process. But over time, you end up, you just feel different and you don't know why. And so I've experienced that in my own life as well. And I've experienced times where external events, whether it's the death of a parent or trouble at work or something that distracts you, that again, over time, when you come out the other end, something's missing. There's other things there, but there's other things inevitably that you've given up in the process that you weren't aware of. And you can struggle to get back to where you were without understanding why, which in itself can lead you to, I won't say to feel depressed, maybe that's the path for some people where it can leave them depressed, but it can certainly, certainly leave you demotivated. It's a very difficult question to answer. What have you done in order to try to get to the root cause of your particular blocks at any given point? Do you have a system or process? So there's a few things that come to mind, and I'm thinking a specific example in my head right now. Part of it sometimes, let's say you're dealing with grief. Sometimes I think you just have to let the process work itself, and it's going to take time. And just know that it will be all right, that how you're feeling is not good and that it's going to be like this for a while. And also that you'll have roller coaster moments because with grief, for example, that grief does not have to come with the loss of an individual. It can come with maybe part of your own identity for whatever reason has been impacted or there's some other loss in your life, something that's gone that, that you no longer have around can do that. And anybody who's been through grief knows that it is a roller coaster as well. So one day you wake up and you go, hey, I'm fine. Everything's good. I, I found my mojo again. And then you come crashing back down again. And then people, the, the mistake, I think what happens is people go, what's wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong with you. It's, that's the process. And we just sometimes have to let it work itself. And in fact, the more you let it work itself and not interfere with it and just experience as it is, I think the faster you'll come through the other side. So that's one thing. I think it's natural and human to try to rationalize it and say, here's why I'm feeling this way. And I'm not sure that helps. Maybe when you're trying to explain it to somebody else, maybe it helps there. But in terms of your own healing, I'm not convinced it helps. There is another area as well where I think also we all need a kick in the arse and a kick from yourself doesn't do any harm either so on one side i'm saying that the process fix itself but on the other side i'm also saying sometimes just waiting for that right feeling to come around again is not the right thing to do you know that expression it's not how you feel that determines how you act it's how you act that determines how you feel so sometimes getting up and doing things even though it doesn't feel good and you're not motivated to do it it's like for anybody, say, for example, wants to run a marathon or do anything like that, there's going to be absolute, there's going to be days and you do not want to get up off the couch, but you know that you have to. And it's funny thing is, once you get off the couch and change, then the feeling that was holding you back in that moment is actually gone because you've changed state. That's what people who are very disciplined are very good at. They're very good at changing state. They know that if I move, then... I'll no longer be feeling how I was. So we're looking at the micro and the macro here. We're looking at in the moment sometimes the things that you know we call procrastination or 
some people will say is being lazy. It's just a state of mind that in that moment, I don't feel like it. And then there's the macro or maybe probably longer term is a more correct term is where in life, there's just a malaise, there's you're demotivated. And we all go through periods of that. And that's probably a little bit different. So I think they let the process work itself is when there's a natural external event that has caused it. I think if it's something that is maybe less traumatic and it's just just life has taken over and you've fallen out of love with something and you're no longer motivated to go out and call on customers, for example, or, or to go to training, whatever it is, I think with those, you just you need to give yourself a kick in the arse. Just say, look, let me just do it. Not even do it. Let me start the process. It's analogous to when you want to go running is just get changed into your running gear. You're not committing to the run. You're just committing to change into your running gear. And then once you do that, I've found that it breaks that cycle of, uh, I don't feel like doing it. Because then you kick, you start kicking yourself when you, when you don't feel like doing it and you don't do it. Then, you know, half an hour later, you kind of go fall into regret or you, you start kicking yourself virtually. You're kind of going, I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I go out? Blah, blah, blah. It sounds to me like what you're suggesting, and certainly it's been my experience in many cases, is simply taking action uh, is sufficient to break the negative pattern. And you don't necessarily need to understand the why, the root cause, because very often that's an accumulation of circumstance, feeling, expectation, and all sorts of other noise. And simply by taking decisive, intentional action towards the goal, then your attitude eventually catches up. It can be, Marcus. It can be. I think for certain short-term, any kind of short-term mood issues where I don't feel like getting off the couch for certain. I think there's other malaises that we can get into and again i use say grief as a as an example where maybe let's say you've lost somebody and it's most people can identify with that i think that's different you know what's the action that you can take there that's going to get rid of this grief it, it doesn't work that way it's a lot deeper than that you've almost you know, not just almost you actually feel like part of you is missing and that takes time so can you help yourself i think so but at the same time you've just got to respect the process and say there's nothing wrong with me this is perfectly natural and if anything everything is right with you because you are exactly where you should be in something like that and i think the danger is which is why i kind of jumped on that is that i think people can look at you and kind of go would you ever pull yourself together and it isn't that simple i think you have to have huge empathy for people i'm also to be able to distinguish between people who are are going through something and everybody's going through something that we don't know about and then just people who just don't want to be arsed which is a completely different thing (laughs) you talked about attachment and this is an area that i'm certainly very interested in the buddha said that attachment is the root to all misery and certainly (laughs) in sales i see that a lot where salespeople are attached to the outcome or their ego is attached to a particular sale, or they are attached to winning a particular logo as a customer. And as a result, they lose perspective. They abdicate control. And I'm curious to take that conversation a bit deeper. What did you mean Mm. by attachment? 
Okay, so there are a few things. And far, far be it for me to correct Buddha. I also think attachment is the root of all joy, too. But you're right, it is, it is a double-edged sword. And attachment, I think it's ego attachment is the one where you, you run yeah. into difficulty. So somebody might be attached to a logo, not because they give a damn about that logo, but because their boss is going to kick their ass. They're going to be in trouble. They're going to be humiliated, embarrassed, etc. if they don't bring in X number of logos. I'm not sure that's, is that really attachment? Well, it is. There's an ego attachment that you don't want to lose face. You want to do well, but it's not attachment to the logo. There's an associative attachment, let's call it that. I think also then for some people, there is an attachment to status, for example. You know, we're status-seeking animals. And for people to be attached to that, I think is dangerous because status is always in the hands of other people. So when you hand over attachment to status, you're actually handing over control of how you feel to other people, which I think is not good. I think that can lead to problems and but if you look at attachment, people will do dastardly things because of attachments. I think also, you know, it's attaching your own ego. In the news the other day, there was somebody murdered a girlfriend because she broke it off with him. And his own ego could not take the slight of detachment. And therefore, that caused this idiot to do something reprehensible. Now, that's an extreme example. But in our all life, we drive nice cars. Why? Do we do that as a reward for hard work? Or do we do it because we feel we need the ego boost to make us feel better about ourselves? That's the attachment I think we're talking about here that can be dangerous, that, that can undermine ourselves because we now need these external sources of reward. Sorry, not even reward, motivation. And therefore, we're not in control. We're subservient. We're slaves to advertising men and women, to marketing men and women who tell us that we need this shit. That's the truth. In my case, I have to have a German car because they're designed for fat German businessmen and they accommodate my hips. But there's no other manufacturer of cars that have uh, hip cushions, no? Well, they have to be German cars. I don't really fancy driving a left hand drive, bad enough driver as it is. <laughs> so a motorbike would be excellent yeah me and a hog i can see that oh yeah <laughs> named after me help me understand this then i mean you've been doing this game for a long time and over time you must have seen how the fractured relationship between management and sales escalates and evolves and I'm really curious to understand how that can be bridged because very often managers, in fact, I literally posted about 10 minutes ago about this, that the typical route into a sales management position is your boss gets fired, you're the top performer, so you get told, congratulations, you are one, with no runway, no training, no resources. And then you're simply marching time till you get fired the first time. There's a disconnect between sales and management. How do you work that so that new managers really get to understand how to manage and detach themselves from what was done to them so that they become productive, effective managers rather than yet another 
bully that yells and screams and yeah. writes spread sheets. Like everything else, you can see the problem. I can see the problem. Externally, most people can see the dysfunctional relationship that often exists. It's unfair to say in every situation, but does often exist, particularly in, in new managers where what made them successful as a salesperson has not set them up to be successful as a manager. And there's no other profession where we do that, where we take somebody who's the top performer and that qualifies them to be this other very different role. It's crazy. But anyway, that it is what it is. We're not going to change that immediately. But it's like everything else. For me, the first phase of it is awareness. They have to be aware or they have to become aware that First of all, what made them successful as a salesperson is not going to necessarily make them successful as managers. That management is a different, different job. Um, it's motivating staff. It's coaching them. It's training them. It's inspiring them. It's showing leadership. It's many things that are not necessarily required in any great amount to be successful as an individual salesperson. And the problem is when you don't know how to do it, you can become frustrated because as one manager said, said this, said this to me years ago, she was very, very successful. President's club every single year, top salesperson was made manager, of course. And she actually realized after a couple of years of doing management that she didn't want it anymore. She went back to being an account director because what she said was that for so many years, she was the controller of her own destiny and she was happy doing that. Didn't make a difference what anybody else in the team was doing it. She left the office on a Monday morning, but came back on a Friday evening with orders in her hand and became successful. Now she says she was held hostage by the six members of her team. And if they decided for whatever reason that they weren't going to be successful, automatically she wasn't going to be successful. So she wasn't cool with that. And she had the awareness to say, you know, this is not for me. And uh, now, could she have changed from in a, as a manager? She could have, but she made an, an adult choice that that wasn't the route she wanted to take. But she was aware of it, and that's the key thing, is awareness. Because when people are not aware of it, what happens is our frustrations spill out. We can't understand how these people can't sell like the way we used to sell and why they're not being successful and why, even though you're giving them everything, they're not motivated, and they're not team players, et cetera, et cetera. And so... What that tends to spill out that is often dysfunctional relationships and management either locking themselves away from the sales team just to protect their own sanity or what they're doing is screaming. They're using pitch side. You know, you ever see parents on a sideline at an undermine the soccer game and they're screaming at their kids, run up the pitch, do this, do that. And you can, you can hear the kids going, they're swearing. I won't swear on your podcast, Marcus, but they're not taking it gladly. Then they go up and be adults and somebody else does the same thing and they're kind of going, you know what, I didn't want this as a kid and I'm certainly not going to take this crap from anybody as an adult. And so there, then becomes very quickly this dysfunctional relationship and what happens is a team member leaves because as we all know, people don't leave companies, they leave managers and then the manager's under pressure to hire somebody else and because they haven't been trained and how to find somebody, they hire somebody like them and there's a, a honeymoon period because they've just hired a mini-me but very quickly there's a clash because it's a mini me and the whole dysfunctional cycle starts all over again. So the first step, awareness. They have to be aware that it's a different job, different skill sets are required, and they have to be aware of where they are in 
the spectrum of skills that are required. Where are they good? Where do they need help? They also have to be able to, they have to see it as significant. The growth that's required in their skill sets, they need to see that as significant. Otherwise, why would they invest time in doing it? They also then have to stop discounting in their own mind that something can be done about this. So they have to believe that there's a viable path to becoming a very effective manager, that there's a proven path, time-tested, there's people out there, coaches, trainers, willing to help them. And also they have to have believed that they can do it, that, that if they've made that decision and committed to it, and that they'll put in the effort that they'll get there. So that's the path. And that, that's a problem-solving path. It's, just, it's the same steps we all go through when we're trying to learn a new skill, overcome any kind of a problem in our, in our personal lives is we have to, first of all, become aware that it's a problem. We have to see it as significant. We have to believe that it can be changed. We also have to believe that we can change. That's what I would do. Paul, I want to take issue with one thing that you said. You mentioned managers motivating their people. I'm going to call bullshit on that for the simple reason that motivation is an internal force. You can inspire, you can guide, you can cajole, bully, brutalize, uh, you can threaten, you can bribe, but motivation is an internal force. And I think where a lot of managers waste an inordinate amount of time is trying to motivate their people. Their job is to understand their people. And if they really understand them, then they can remind them of what their motivation is. And if they can do that, then they can drive the right kind of behavior. Okay, no, I understand that. And I get where you're coming from, is that that motivation has to be internal. I understand it 100%, and I subscribe to it. I remember years ago when I was training for the marathon, I was out one Sunday with my brother-in-law and it was this hellishly long run. Uphill it appeared the whole way. And he, he, I remember, he never, I'll never forget it. He turned to me and he said, you know, Paul, he says, you could not pay me to do this. And he was right. Nobody was paying us. Nobody was going to get upset. It came from within. That said, I don't think that's the complete picture. I certainly think managers can undermine people's motivation by not giving them recognition i think we can temporarily motivate people i mean you and i have always got we, you know we've gone to talks presentations trainings and you come out and you feel you feel motivated to make a start that's being inspired that's not motivating all right so if i said to you i will give you a million pounds to drink a bottle of coke it doesn't make a difference what it is would that motivate you to dig do that task. Or let's say I'll give you a million pounds to run around in the freezing cold for half an hour. Like that's all it is. Half an hour, get a million pounds. Is that I'd inspiration or motivation? I, I, which, which, are you motivated break. by the money to do that? Uh, again. But I, I, I'm just saying, I don't know that it's as black and white. I understand long-term motivation, consistent motivation has to come from within. I do think managers, though, Okay, let's meet halfway on this one. Say we can impact because as a manager, I can destroy somebody's motivation or I can make it difficult for somebody to stay motivated. And if we accept that's true, if we, if we accept it, then the opposite has to be true as well in that we can impact it and say, if somebody on our team is motivated to work hard, can we help that out by giving judicious 
praise because praise doesn't inspire necessarily, but I do think it helps us feel good. And your motivation can be impacted by our feeling. So that's where I'm coming from on it. Okay. Uh, a man should change the game. Why, why don't we do this, Marcus? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Let our listeners, if there's somewhere they can actually comment on this topic. Yeah, because absolutely. I don't think it's as cut and dry, certainly in my mind, but I'd love to hear what listeners think on this, kind of from their own lives, their own experiences. What's their truth on this? Okay, I think that's fair. You're wrong, obviously, but I think that's fair. So we'll just let the listeners tell you. You're okay, wrong. this is where all the listeners <laughs> now, all your wonderful, wonderful <laughs> listeners, because they are good. I mean, nobody has a fan base like you, Marcus. That's for sure. <laughs> and I'm just curious to know if they come in and you know, somebody like me. What do I know? I'm only, uh, I'm only a paddy. So <laughs> there's no such thing as only a paddy. You lot only appear to be simple. There's a lot more depth to you, I think. Again, let's take there's something that I know you have a massive passion for, mm. which is photography. I know that you feel that there are many parallels between photography and selling. And I'd like to explore that a little bit deeper so that we can uncover your motivation. And again, this is interesting because this goes back to your very first question, which was around the area of what motivates us or what can hold us back. And you can take something like photography and say, well, what motivates me about that? I can tell you, let's say if it's landscape, I can tell you that I'm motivated to, you know, it's kind of escapism. I get up early in the morning, I go out to this awe-inspiring landscape and I'm on my own and that motivates me. But I'm not convinced that's it in itself. I think there's more to it than that, but I just don't know. I also like to do street photography, so I'll wander around and I'm interested in humans and I'm interested in how they interact with their environment and, and capturing that. But I also think what motivates me a little bit is the fact with that kind of photography is that I could get caught at any second. And it's a little bit, I'm living on the edge that somebody could catch me taking a photograph and not like it. And kind of, there's an element of tension. I can't explain it better than that. When you get a really good photograph and you've captured a moment, you're kind of looking at it going, that moment will never exist ever, ever again. And you've maybe captured it in its best light, whatever that is, whether that's a person, a subject, a landscape, etc. You fill in the blanks. It's very hard to know what motivates. It's probably a combination of things. It's probably attachment. It's probably that you're, after a while, maybe what happens is, particularly with social media, is if you get good at it, then people start saying, oh, you're a really good photographer, and that's an ego stroke. So then what do you do? You do more of it. So this could be an element of that too. That said, to your, your initial question about parallels, I think as well, if you think, think of a, a photograph that you really like, first of all, there's an emotional reaction between the, the viewer and the photograph. There has to be. It has to speak to you at some level. It has to resonate with you. You have to feel something about it. Otherwise, it's just meh and you move on. I also believe, Marcus, that sales is about emotion. There has to be a connection between the buyer and seller. And yes, we often teach techniques for making those connections, but that connection often takes place at a deeper level. We're not even aware of it. As in, there's something about the other person that makes us feel good, that resonates with us, that reminds us of something. And as I said, it, it operates at not just at a rational level, 
but at an emotional, intuitive, and somatic level as well. So it's operating at a number of subconscious levels. So that's one thing. There's always a connection. I mean, people will spend a lot of money on a, on a photograph to hang on their wall because it reminds them about something and that makes them feel good. They're not going to put a photograph on the wall that makes them feel bad. So that's one thing. There are other aspects to it as well. There's, for example, if I just take landscape photography, well, to be a good landscape photographer, a couple of things come to mind. One, preparation. You have to prepare well. If you're going to a location and you have to drive hours or travel a long distance with heavy gear, well, you have to know exactly where you're going to be. You have to know where the sun is going to be, where the light's going to come from. You have to be aware in advance what the weather patterns are and so on. So there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. There's another thing as well is that to be a good landscape photographer, you're going to spend a lot of hours standing around in all sorts of inclement weather. And if it's in the, during the summer, you're going to be getting out of bed at three o'clock in the morning sometimes. So <laughs> to get what others don't, you have to be willing to do what others won't which is also true to be successful in any venture in life. You have to, the early bird gets the worm. You have to be willing to do the things that are uncomfortable in order to achieve the result. Because if you didn't, everybody would do it. And there'd be no fun. Where's the fun in that? A couple of other things as well, where I see strong parallels, it's subjective. You know, what makes a good photograph good? That there are no hard and fast rules. There are rules of composition. There are rules of you know what colors will go with what colors and what colors will jar. That if I want to draw somebody's attention to a part of a photograph, what I will do is I will make that part of the photograph high contrast, or I will focus in on a particular color. So their eye, you always want in a photograph, you want to know where people's eye is going to land, and you do that intentionally. I think that's also true in a sales conversation. Where do I want to focus my prospect's attention? If I go in and I just talk about anything and everything, where do we go? If you look at the upfront contract, the whole purpose of that is to draw their attention to a decision that needs to be made. And then how are we going to get there? So those parallels exist. The other one that I like as well is, and it was actually a photographer that came up with this term. He called it sex, S-E-X. And he said, to make a good landscape shot, for example, is you have to simplify the picture. The mistake a lot of amateurs make is that they try to take everything in in the picture. And then you look at it and you go, well, what's the subject? Where do I want my viewer's eye to go? Is there a story I'm trying to tell? Is there a, an emotion I'm trying to, to, to engender? And therefore, as much as it is I want to simplify it, I also have to make a decision about what I'm going to exclude. And that's sometimes even harder. And that's true in a conversation, as you and I both know, that you know, conversations can go anywhere. And if we want it to be a successful conversation, what we have to do is decide as much as what we're going to exclude and what we're not going to talk about, as it is on an agreement. And again, the upfront contract is part of that is what's their agenda, what's your agenda, and saying this is what we're going to talk about. And the purpose of this is to get from, from A to B. So from a photographic point of view, it's the same. I also think this would be a great training exercise is to give a camera to delegates in, in a room and ask them to go out into the street and walk up to perfect strangers and say, would you be okay if I took your photograph? Because if you unpack that, there's a lot in it. First of all, it is overcoming discomfort and be willing to do that. Secondly, and there's a guy now, you'll have to forgive me. Brandon something is his name. He's the guy behind the, humans of new york and if you just 
go to Google and look up Humans of New York. And this guy gave a talk at actually University College Dublin a couple of years ago. And he talked about this idea of walking up to perfect strangers, which is what people do in a prospecting scenario. They may not physically walk up, but what they have to do is be able to make a connection uh, with perfect strangers. And that's essentially what he does. And he said, over the years, he's learned some tried and tested, I guess, call them rules of his reality anyway, which is one, he said he used to obsess about how to ask somebody to take their picture. Can I take your portrait? Can I take your picture? Would you mind if I took your picture? And he said, at the end of the day, it didn't make a difference. He said it was the energy and confidence with which he asked made all the difference. And the other thing that struck me was, he said, when he would take a photograph, for listeners who are not familiar with the humans of New York, this guy would go up, not just take a picture of somebody, but would also then sit down with them. And within a very short amount of time, they'd be telling him about the most traumatic event in their life and what their life story was. And he would put this up every night as a blog. And people would notice. He would tell them up front. Now everybody knows who he is when he, when he says humans of New York. But at the, when he started out first, he'd say, you know, this is going to be as a blog. And they didn't mind. But he said his approach was simple. He would walk up to somebody and said, you know, would you mind if I took your picture? And he said the first picture he took would always be a full length, as in he'd stand back a couple of meters from the individual, take the photograph, kind of a safe distance. And he said when they were comfortable with that, then he would step in and take a head and shoulders. And then he said once that was done, then he'd sit down at their level and he'd just some simple soft questions. Oh, where are you from? Is this your first time in New York? But then very quickly he would get to, well, maybe you could tell me about the most traumatic day in your life or a story about a time where you felt depressed or devastated, whatever it was. But the thing was, very quickly he would get to very intimate questions and he would have their full permission. And up front, of course, if you watch the video, what's interesting, he does that upfront contract. He said, I'd like to take your picture. Then he said, if you're okay with it, I'd like, you know, if you've got time, I'd like to ask you a few questions about where you're from, a little bit about your life. And what I do with these every night is I put them up as, with, as a blog. Are you okay with that? So he would tell them that up front. But then using that frame, he would very quickly get to very intimate details. It was so, I mean, this guy has, when I say 14, 15, maybe even 20 million followers on Twitter, on YouTube, massive following, several books at this stage, all, all because he became very good at approaching and making connections with strangers. So coming back to where I started with this, I think it's a good exercise to get outside your comfort zone is to go out in the street and take pictures. And I don't always ask permission because very often with street photography, I don't want to disturb the scene. I want to capture it the way it is because if I ask somebody for their picture, then they start posing and I don't necessarily want that. But then there's also, I have this one picture. <laughs> I've said it to you sometimes. It was this guy in the States and he's looking into the camera and he looks like he's going to kill me. I think if I'd seen him at the time, I would have turned to jelly. And I look at his cap and it has Navy seal on it. I mean, this guy. I, I remember seeing that photograph. Yeah. Oh my Lord. But that's what I mean by there's a, an excitement and tension with doing attention that comes with taking. And I don't want people to think that I'm a, I'm a voyeuristic or anything. I like to capture street scenes and individuals. And close up, I like to get in close and do it. You know, I'm standing maybe one or two meters away. I think it's a great exercise in getting outside our comfort zones as well. But also, 
if you're going to talk to strangers in the street, or if I see somebody looking at me and they, they kind of catch me, I'll just smile and walk up to and say, listen, you're probably wondering why I'm taking your photograph. And you're kind of, yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, what was it about me? It might be something like, say, I, I thought you had a fantastic mustache, or I just loved your clothes, or I just loved the way the light was catching you and it created these really interesting shadows. Here, have a look. And then nobody ever minds. But it's a good exercise in making connections with strangers. There's where I see a lot of parallels between not just photographs, but also the activity of taking a photograph, taking your time. That was something else was said to me. I was in Montenegro recently and we arrived at this lake. I was with a group of people. And I remember the, the leader guy saying, he says, now he says, by the way, guys, don't take your cameras out of your bags. Just spend a few minutes walking around, get a sense of the environment. You get a sense of how it feels to you and what you'd like to, what emotion are you feeling? and then. How are you going to capture that? So it teaches you a kind of an awareness of where you are and what's happening too. And then, of course, if you go into sports photography, which is something I've done, it's a whole different ballgame, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Is you're trying to anticipate maybe where the ball is going to be. And so you're ready, you have to be ready and you have to be quick. So it's all about there, about reflexes. Very interesting. Paul, what I wanted to do was have a very quick chat about the kind of work that you're doing the moment with your clients. Because it sounds to me like a lot of the work that you're doing is going beyond technique and getting deeper into the psychology. How come you've taken that path and deviated from the traditional sales training pathway, which is really about technique? It always starts out as technique. That's what people want to talk about first. What do I say when a prospect does this? How do I respond in kind? And that's not a bad place to start. But what happens then very quickly is you have a conversation. You find out, well, okay, but how did you end up there? How did you end up in a situation where you're doing a song and dance or you're doing a dump of everything you know and they're throwing all these objections in your way? And then that's when you kind of get into people people's belief systems and their head trash, what they believe is true based on their experience. And that's when then when you kind of have to unpack that a little bit more and look at alternative approaches and say, well, look, if you really want to fix this, it's like what Bruce Lee said. He said, the best way to avoid a punch is be somewhere else. Yeah, it's probably from you, that's where I heard it. See, you know, I, I, I'm a learner. <laughs> I learn from the best. And, uh, <laughs> and me. So, <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's getting people then comfortable with, first of all, realizing that what they're doing is not productive. And a belief, like we said about the sales managers, it's bringing awareness, not just of what's happening, but why it's happening. And then attaching a level of significance to that, that unless we change, we're not going to get different results. And if we want different results, we have to be able to be not just able to, but willing to put in the effort to be vulnerable, be uncomfortable, knowing that if I continue to practice and learn, then I'll get better and become more effective and ideally have a different approach to sales, where a lot of people, their instinct. The funny thing about this is that I sat in a presentation last week's Marcus, and it was this piece of software was being presented, and I thought it was the coolest thing on the planet. 
I said, I can't wait to, I'm not kidding you. I came out of there and I said to people, I cannot wait to tell people about this. My instinct. (laughs) And I've been doing this a long time. And, 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 you know, and I pull my hair out trying to get people not to do that. But my instinct was to say, let me tell you about this. Here's what it does. And then I go, okay, yeah, that's my instinct. But sometimes your instinct is not productive. Because all that happens is, you see, I had discovered that it was exciting, but I can't assume that anybody else is going to connect with it just based on my 30 second or two minute dump on it either. So we have to slow it down and, and ask different questions and start from where our prospects are, not where we are. And I think that's the, what I'm talking about when, when I talk about approach and understand that nobody cares about the software. Nobody cares about the features. Nobody cares about the benefits. They care about do they have an issue or a problem or an end goal that this is going to help them with? And so therefore we have to have that conversation around the issue, the problem or the end goal. Are they aware of Is this something on their agenda and is it significant for them? And do they believe that there's a way to get there? And if there is, then how does this software help them get there? So it's kind of going back to first principles. Excellent. Okay. Let's wrap up. What are you reading, watching, listening to that's influencing you at the moment? Funny enough, I like to read and watch a lot outside sales. Yes, I do read sales books, books on storytelling, books on account management, books on questioning, personality types, you know, all of that standard stuff. But I love to go to the psychology section as well and read books about kind of self-sabotage, how, how irrational, how our brain works. and how we think in very irrational ways about the world and just get a deeper understanding. And I think where that comes from is that when I was a software programmer, one of the reasons why I probably got bored at it is software is very if-then-else. It's pure logic. There's no emotion whatsoever in it. But then when I started to work with humans and I started talking to them about the product, they didn't react the way I thought they were going to react. And it took me a while to understand. And, I'm, and again, I'm still on that journey of trying to understand people. But I guess the more you analyze it and the more you work with people, I guess the better you, you do get at it. But it's an ongoing journey. And I don't know that we'll ever fully understand the human psyche. I am deeply fascinated in that. More, I think it's more of an interest than, than it is on pure sales books. Because here's the thing. By the way, maybe this is another one for your listeners to comment on this, is that I would challenge anybody to find me a sales book right now on the market that says something that hasn't been said at least 10 times before in other books. Yeah, pretty much. But when I first got into Sandler, the reason I put the CDs and book in my intro was I'd read 300 sales books by then. And they were all telling me the same old stuff that was out of date when Mm. Queen Victoria was a kid. It really hadn't evolved. There are a couple of really interesting ones that take a fresh uh, approach. So Larry Levine's Selling from the Heart, Anthony Anarino's Eat Their Lunch. There's some really nice bits and pieces out there. They're Um, nice, they're well-written and well-presented. But I still challenge anybody to tell me something in there that has not been said already. Fair enough. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with taking a fresh approach on something. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that people talk about this is new and it's different to me, it's just completely bullshit. I mean, I'm, there's a book, there's this guy, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but he's touting this, is that, you know, he's saying there's no other book like this in the market. 
And I'm going, you know what? I heard David Sandler talk about that 40 years ago. And I'm sure there's people talked about it before then as well. So I remain to be convinced on that. Yeah. But I'm open. If somebody can give me the name of a book that says something that, that teaches something about sales that we don't currently understand from 10 other books. I think Making Channel Sales Work's got some original content in there, but that would be plugging my own book, so I won't. Well, that's an area that has never been really fully developed before. So you hit on something really, really important. And then, you know, again, when you get into the substance of it in terms of how people are motivated, et cetera, that's been written about. Yeah. But the context, the frame you've chosen, I think is pretty unique. And it's, it's something that people absolutely need because they're completely underserved. It's one of the hardest jobs there is to be in channel sales. And you're absolutely right, Marcus, about channel sales and about your book on channel sales is that that is an underserved market for so long. I don't know why, because it not just it was important. I think it is becoming more important to organizations as they scale globally, as you know, the, the world is now. It's, it's been hard. important. It's been important for the last 40 years. But if 75% of all products today across all 26 verticals are sold through the channel, it's been important, but it's been massively undervalued. And it's been terribly underserved by the quality of the people in it. it Great channels are fantastic, yeah. but they're so few and far between. It is. And kudos to you for identifying that and then taking all the good stuff and, and putting it into a framework of channel sales because people need that too. They, they need to see it through their eyes in their world, not in somebody else's. So, you know, at the heart of it, in terms of what motivates people and the tactics and techniques that you're using are probably the same as if I'm in front of somebody or similar, but the, the context for them is different. And that's what people need. They need the different context, which is why there are so many books out there is that they're providing maybe a slightly different context, different stories, a different voice, but the underlying substance is pretty much the same. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Paul, one final question then. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Paul at 23, what sort of heartache would you help them avoid? And what would your advice be? I would say get serious sooner. I had no clue what I wanted to do at 23. I think to focus on, to define some goals and focus on those, which is probably the flip side of not really knowing what I wanted to do. But then I never took the time to figure that out maybe to be not so naive about the world. I think it took me a long time to realize the world didn't work the way I thought it worked. I was quite innocent about that. I thought, again, from a sales point of view, that if you just showed up and presented your wonderful products, some people would buy and some people wouldn't. I thought it was that simple. And humans are far more complex than that. So I look at some people and I see how streetwise they are, how they, how they understand the way the world works. It took me a long time. I certainly was well into my 30s, I think, before the penny dropped on that. I wished it had dropped a decade sooner. That would be my big thing. And you know, not to worry about what other people think. Nobody cares. It's, it's really interesting. I interviewed Dave Matson, the CEO of Sandler, yesterday evening. And his mm. advice to his 23-year-old was exactly the opposite, uh, which was to lighten up and uh, not take himself so seriously. So... Yeah, it's, it's, it, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we're coming from different perspectives. I know Dave well, and Dave was, while he was in college, he was running his own business. Very focused, very serious. I was the other end of the spectrum. Maybe there's a halfway house. <laughs>
a bit more serious about all the drinking and philandering. Paul, how can people get hold of you? Probably best way, Marcus, is LinkedIn. Just Paul Lanigan. That's one in. I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, you can't miss the big potato head on me. So. <laughs> or, and I won't mention the budgie catcher. That's probably it. <laughs> Fabulous. Paul Lanigan, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you'd like to come on as a guest, if you've got somebody that you'd particularly like me to interview. And remember, the format of this is the two old men from the Muppets. So it's going to be a very much in-your-face direct conversation. It should be challenging and not afraid of controversy either. And we can disagree. So if you don't like my material, please invite yourself onto my podcast and we can argue the task and just get in touch. Like, share, comment, and don't forget to subscribe. Thanks, guys. Until next time. Bye.